We are live. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another Educator Innovator Hangout on Air. I am the host for this Hangout. I'm Singita Shrestova, and I'm the Research Director of the Media Activism and Participatory Politics Project based at USC. And I'm here with my colleague, Henry Jenkins, also based at USC. Um, the Hangout is one of a series of June webinars tied to the National Writing Project Letter to the Next President 2.0 Summer Make Cycles. Letters to the Next President engages and connects young people aged 13 to 18 as they write, research, write, and make media to voice their opinions on issues that matter to them in the coming election. Today's discussion focuses on the topic of voice to influence, educating for participatory politics. And before I turn it over to Henry here, I just have a quick note. For those of you watching this Hangout Live, we encourage you to post your thoughts, ideas, and questions via the Q&A feature embedded in the video player. Or you can also tweet questions and follow along using the hashtag 2NextPress with a Z. We'll be live tweeting this conversation at innovates underscore ed. And I'll turn it over to Henry to give us a little context. OK. So, so um, the panelists here assembled here all are contributors to a special issue of Journal of Digital Media Literacy that is coming out later in this month that's focused around the theme of from voice to influence. And this issue took shape because Sangeet and I are co-authors, co among others, of a book that's just come out by Any Media Necessary, The New Youth Activism. We are part of the MacArthur Foundation's Youth and Participatory Politics Research Network which is a sister to the Connected Learning Research Network, also funded by MacArthur. So the intersection between those two research networks is really has been this question of voice to influence. Because we're seeing young people express themselves in a variety of ways online. Certainly there are uneven access to technologies, uneven access to literacies, uneven access to mentorship and opportunities to participate. So those are challenges right there. But we're seeing a variety of groups push young people to express themselves politically, socially, culturally through the new media environment. As they do so, the question is, when does that have an impact? What is the influence of this? We can certainly point to spectacular examples from Black Lives Matter, to the Occupy movement, to the support that Bernie Sanders received in this last election cycle of young people taking political action. But we still don't know as much as we should about when that action is simply frustrating, when young people feel disempowered having put themselves out there, when they feel intimidated or shut down by their exposure to the political process. And a central question for us in this room is what does this mean for educators? How can we think about the teaching process? How can we think about bringing some of those experiences from outside of the classroom into the school and how do we think more seriously than we have so far about vo both voice and influence in the context of, say, public schools, which often are deeply repressive spaces, or can be, of the voices of both teachers and students? So with that, I'll turn it back over to Sangeeta. So to get the conversation started, I'm going to ask 
each one of you to introduce yourselves, given the number of people will keep these introductions fairly brief and hopefully we'll get to know one another more through the conversation that um, follows that. But as we go around, just give your name, um, your affiliation or whatever you want your title to be <laughs> today, and then give a, maybe one sentence summary or two sentence summary of the article that you contributed to the special issue. And just to keep things organized for us right now, I'm going to look to, I guess, my left and I'm going to say, Andres, why don't you start us off? Okay, thank you, Sangiri and Henry, and hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Andres Lombana Bermudez. I am a fellow at the Bergen Center for the Internet and Society and a research associate with the Connected Learning Research Network. My contribution to the special issue is a case study of a digital filmmaking after-school program and a group of Latino-Hispanic youth at a minority-majority low-performing and economically disadvantaged public school in Austin, Texas. Our phone is ringing, but I'm going to keep, I'm going to take us off mute and just say, maybe Ashley, go ahead. Sure. Um, hello, I'm Ashley Lee, and I'm a doctoral candidate at Harvard Graduate School of Education, and I'm representing my wonderful co-authors and colleagues at Project Zero, Carrie, Margaret, and Danielle. The core question for our study was, how do young people use social media for civic dialogue? So we really went into nitty-gritties of how young people are uh, leveraging social media to um, talk about, talk politics. Great. And maybe Eric and Paul, um, maybe one of you can go first and then one of you can provide the introduction to your joint article. Sure. So I'll, I'll, my name is Paul Mihalidis. I'm uh, um, uh, associate professor at Emerson College in Boston and co-director of the Engagement Lab and the paper that Eric and I wrote is called How is that useful exactly? Civic Media and the Usability of Knowledge in Liberal Arts Education and I can let Eric um, say a few lines about it. Sure, thanks Paul. <clears throat> My name is Eric Gordon. Uh, I'm an associate professor uh, at Emerson College uh, in Boston and the director of the Engagement Lab there. Um, and uh, Paul and I wrote this, this essay really in response to what we saw as a tension within um, um, liberal arts education on the college level uh, and a tension between what uh, usefulness of knowledge, the idea that, that students wanted out of, out of classes something usable, something that they could, um, th that they could uh, like take from the college, uh, take from the, from the uh, classroom and bring it directly out into the career space. Uh, and, and we, in, in fact, wanted to get at something a little bit more nuanced. So we, uh, we talked about in our article um, something that we call the usability of knowledge, where, where it's about sort of uh, making, uh, um, giving students an opportunity to, to, um, to have an application, to see the application of knowledge um, beyond simply the, the career space. So really complicating um, what, what liberal arts education has become today. Thank you. Erica? Sure. Hi, my name is Erica Hodgen, and I work um, with the Civic Engagement Research Group at Mills College, and I'm also the research director of a project we called Educating for Democracy in the Digital Age, which is a partnership with Oakland Unified School District and National Writing Project to promote civic learning opportunities and digital learning opportunities for young people um, in high schools in Oakland. And so. Um, the article that I wrote focuses on a case study of four high school teachers 
um, who've used an online um, platform to provide students with opportunities for voice and also influence and to engage with other peers across um, the United States around issues that matter to them. And in the article, I really wanted to sort of think about with teachers, you know, sort of conceptualizing what does it mean to do this work in schools and also what are the challenges that teachers run up against. Janae, I have to say everybody's name so I kind of take away some of your thunder. <laughs> Sorry. Janae. Hi, my name is Janae Phillips. Um, I'm the chapters director at the Harry Potter Alliance. Um, HPA is an international nonprofit. We use parallels between pop culture um, and real world issues to engage youth in leadership and activism. Um, I wrote more about that and about how we're using fandom and specifically the hero's journey and storytelling and infusing that into more traditional leadership education to um, engage youth who normally wouldn't otherwise be engaged in leadership and activism. And last but not least, I believe, Sasha. Uh, hi, Sasha Costanza-Chak. I'm Associate Professor of Civic Media at MIT um, and also co-founder and worker owner at Research Action Design, RAD. And uh, the, the chapter uh, that, that we contributed. It's a co-authored article uh, by folks from Global Action Project, which is a youth media and youth organizing organization in New York City, together with uh, folks from Research Action Design. And it's a nationwide field scan of the ways that youth organizers are using media uh, as a tool in the organizing work that they do. And it's based on focus groups with about 50 uh, young people and youth organizers, and a survey, a nationwide organizational level survey, um, which with 166 youth organizers um, who are respondents from about 106 organizations um, around the country in both urban and rural communities. And so we wanted to know, yeah, how, how, how do people who are youth organizers working for social justice across a range of issues and intersectional issues incorporate media of different kinds into their organizing work? And so we ask questions about that. Great. Um, yeah, that special issue, which is going to be, I think, great. We're really excited about it. It's coming out on June 27th. Um, so we will definitely be letting everybody know and spreading the news about it going live. It's also going to be linked to this webinar, so it's always going. they're always going to coexist. And this is an online journal that's available for free. So if you're listening to this, keep an eye out on the Journal yeah. of Digital Media Literacy. Yes, and there's a link, link listed under the under the live webinar. So I guess to get our conversation started, um, I wanted to ask a question that's a little bit of a mouthful, but I am going to read it because I was going to make it shorter, but I actually think it's, it deserves being asked in full. Um, uh, a lot of us in the special issue looked at in-school and out-of-school contexts and grappled with some of the bottlenecks that exist, and so I thought this might be a really good place to start. Um, so why do young people have a much more meaningful opportunity for civic learning, engagement, and participation outside of school than within? And of course, this is a generalization. We have wonderful examples of the contrary in the special issue. What might educators learn from looking at the kinds of instruction and learning that are emerging within grassroots organizations, movements, and networks that have been effective at getting youth involved in the political process? And I'd like to invite all of you to come at it from wherever your case study or your area of specialty is. So if, if you're from the out, looking at outside school contexts, 
can you talk to that? And if you're looking at in-school contexts, look, speak to that as well. And I, I'll just open it up because I think we all know how the webinar format works. So just go ahead and start. And if we jump over each other, I can always shift back to calling on people, but I prefer to have a discussion. All right, I'm going to pick someone. Sorry. <laughs> um, anybody want to start us off? Wave your hand, and then uh, otherwise I'll just do the classroom thing. I can start. Hey, thank you, Paul. All right. Yeah, you're welcome. So um, <clears throat> it was, it's, a, it's a complicated question. I think we're all pausing to um, create real deep and meaningful answers for you. Um, <clears throat> so I think uh, for me, I think our, our paper looked at this, the notion of um, liberal learning in, in institutes of higher education. And, um, and I think there's a few things that I can hopefully start this conversation off, and my answer will, will be um, part and parcel. But uh, the first, obviously, is there are uh, a lot of constraints now in higher education that, uh, that are, I think, weighing down the system uh, or the space of formal liberal learning in higher education to make it more dynamic and adaptable and responsive. Uh, and part of that is uh, the skills and dispositions uh, that educators need to uh, be more dynamic in their learning. There are a lot of pressures on universities to, um, <clears throat> to mark themselves as kind of spaces of usable knowledge where skills need to translate into a careerist focus. Uh, and there might be less um, opportunity to engage in uh, the type of meaningful civic learning that we hope anchors these spaces, uh, these spaces of higher education. Uh, and I think um, thirdly, uh, and what we found um, uh, was that uh, you know that that uh, that the technologies and the way that they're progressing are allowing for real uh, kind of agile engagement at the fringes of uh, of I think all institutes of edu education. Uh, and and um, and that's organizations and groups and movements can be kind of more uh, they can take more risks they can be more adaptive it's not tied to the structures for assessment and feedback that universities are and those are some of the a few just to start us off I think a few of the constraints uh, that that um, that we're putting on institutions to be as adaptive as organizations have been. I'm happy to build off of that. Um and just jump in. And I, I would say, you know, similarly to I'm sure what Paul and Eric looked at, you know, the study that I focused on and also the group that our work does is really working with educators in K through 12 schools. And I think those constraints are equally as um, limiting in the current context. I think, you know, as a former teacher and also working closely with teachers over the last number of years, you know, we, we all see how much they have to juggle and I think with high stakes testing and you know with whatever form the sort of pressures take I think teachers are juggling a lot in the in-school context and so that has pushed out many things that don't fit into what might be termed as college and career ready um, and so we have been finding you know if there are ways to work with educators or teachers to really think about college career and what we're calling community ready that it's really important for us to sort of think beyond um, the sort of limiting scope of also what is considered community ready or what's considered civic um, 
participation, that it's not just about voting. And I think for K-12 education especially, because young people are um, often not old enough to vote, then I think it's also important for us to really think about what, what do we mean by civic learning, what do we mean by civic participation in sort of how we talk about it in a mainstream way. I think it's often really limiting. Um, and so really thinking about non-institutional forms of ways that young people engage and how our, our schools in particular, can they help young people have opportunities to um, engage um, beyond the sort of voting institutional forms. Um, and I think, Sangeeta, you sort of mentioned this, and, and I'll, I'll just say this briefly, but I'm excited to talk about this more with everyone, that um, while I think, you know, often we don't see this in schools, I think we, we um, I'm also really excited to think about where is it happening in schools. There are pockets where it is happening, and there are innovative educators who are doing this amidst everything else they're juggling. And so how can we highlight that better, one? How can we share that out? And how can we connect educators across different contexts to be able to do this more and to really innovate? Because I think people, from my experience, you know, I think teachers are eager for this, but they need time and space and support. I'm going to actually jump in on that and invite those of you who had Sasha. I'm going to turn it over. Okay, I'll turn it over to Sasha because you wanted to say something and then I'll redirect. Oh, okay, thanks. Um, so among the young people and youth organizers that we, uh, we worked with for, for the report that we summarized in the chapter, 60% um, of them said that they got involved in uh, media work because they had a desire to advance social justice. Um, and I think this is really interesting, you know, key finding for us because a lot of times we hear a discourse about young people, especially youth of color and marginalized young people uh, as being civically apathetic or something. But in fact, many of the young people that we were talking to and listening to are saying, no, they're, they're learning media skills because they're trying to organize in their communities and uh, they're, they're trying to advance social justice struggles. And among the youth organizers, one in four got started um, um, in an educational or employment program, but, um, but the same amount said that they got involved because of a personal experience with injustice. And so I think in terms of the question about, you know, why does this happen in out-of-school context than in, rather than in school, unfortunately for a lot of young people, especially uh, queer, trans, and gender nonconforming youth, youth of color, school's not necessarily a place where, um, where you get to exercise uh, your desire to advance social justice. It's a place where structures of oppression get reproduced on you and your body. So if you're a gender nonconforming young person, you might be struggling to try and get access to a bathroom that you feel you know, safe that you can use. Or you might be struggling uh, to keep out of being pushed out uh, from your school into the school to prison pipeline, if you're, especially if you're a black youth or if you're a especially if you're a trans youth of color, right? So schools, unfortunately, for many young people are sites where uh, white supremacy and heteropatriarchy are being reproduced um, and they're experiencing injustice and oppression rather than a place where their desire to contribute meaningfully um, to creating a new, uh, more, more liberatory world uh, is, being, is being reinforced. So the place where they find that is out of school and in social movement networks and in family groups and in community contexts. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and, and along those lines, I actually wanted to maybe, Janae, did you, because you're also looking at an out-of-school context, I think, right? Because you're working with educators now, but just kind of provide context or more of a perspective on what Sasha just shared. Yeah, um, I think that 
you know, we we see similar numbers, I suppose, in our groups where, you know, we had 75% of our chapter organizers saying that this is the first time they've ever participated in activism. Um, but, you know, about half of them are saying that they joined either because they were connected to fandom and wanted to get more involved in that or because they wanted to make a difference. And we hear a lot that they like bringing those two things together. Um, but I, like kind of building on what um, all of you have said, because I think the way it comes together is I have heard a lot from teachers and even from some other nonprofits that there's a lot of fear and nervousness when you're beholden to different stakeholders than other nonprofits are, that you're working within limitations that, um, you know, nonprofits like HPA are not working with. And so that is really limiting on how comfortable you feel being creative or trying new systems or being even able to try new systems. Um, and I think that accounts for a lot of it in kind of this vein of we're looking at these big institutional things and participating in part of the oppression, but also just, you know, I have this stakeholder who I don't know if they're going to let me do something more creative or they might take away my funding and there's just all kinds of complications in that mode. So Andres, I, I think this is a perfect segue actually for you to, to share some of what you found in your study. Yes, I was wondering after listening to to Sasha actually uh, that I mean this this liminal space of the after school programs um, it's kind of interesting because these after school programs are based inside schools so they but however they they manage somehow to open these opportunities to groups of interest to get together you you got this variety uh, in this high school that we were doing research in in um, in the fringes of Austin. We, we encountered a variety of after-school programs of different uh, groups, uh, including like from video games to digital filmmaking, uh, theater, dance, languages. And um, it's interesting because it is precisely these groups of, uh, that are promoting digital technologies, right, where uh, a lot of students of color are also like uh, being attracted and getting together with their peers. However, uh, because in these schools, low-performing and minority-majority uh, schools, they are also promoting this workforce readiness uh, with the technology. There is a misbelief uh, somehow that you could create these pathways to digital filmmaker or video game as, as just an experience that take, takes place in after school without actually connecting the students with mentors or doing something that is more like a structure. So we, what we found is like a lot of engagement of these youths doing a video game or producing a film, uh, but lack of connections with civic organizations or with mentors who could guide them after after the program. So I, I think that that's an interesting point of um, to 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 consider. It's just like after school programs could be like a great opportunity for for this engagement, civic engagement inside the schools that somehow teachers, especially for low income. Uh, uh, youth of color, they are looking at them as, oh no, we have to place them in the pipeline of something, like workforce for uh, filmmaking or video games, but it's not as easy as we know, like the lack of uh, diversity in their networks creates these gaps that after they finish high school, they, they cannot easily bridge, and that's something that it happened in my case study, that uh, I, I worked with, with youth who, who were very enthusiastic about uh, becoming um, 
joining the creative force, especially in a city like Austin, but uh, they couldn't bridge the, the gaps and encounter these, uh, the divides, the actually socioeconomic divides that go beyond high school if you are not prepared to go to college or to follow a career. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'd like to say something. Um, I think that one of the tensions that, that uh, we found was this, this tension between the instrumentality of, of knowledge around technology uh, and, and, and some of the other sort of uh, uh, um, secondary learning goals, perhaps. And that might be the, 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 the civic purposes, the, uh, the ways of, of sort of putting, uh, putting, putting information into, into action. And I think this is, this is, um, this is complex, because for the students, uh, the idea of learning, uh, using technology and making a career out of it is really important. Um, and, and, and institutions are there to support that child. And, um, and in some cases, parents are there to support that, uh, that progression from, you know, from, from, uh, from, from learning a skill to, um, uh, to, to turning that into a career. Um, and so economic development is an important part of this, right? It's, it's about providing opportunities. But for, for us, and, the, and, and what we wrote about, one of, one of the, the, the consequences of this focus on the instrumentality of the knowledge that comes with technological learning is that the, the institutions of, of um, in our case, of higher ed are sort of, um, are kind of twisting themselves to accommodate this instrumentality, uh, to accommodate the, uh, to, to accommodate this kind of uh, career progression around a technological skill uh, and that's being reinforced not only by the student who wants those opportunities because they're paying ridiculous amounts of money to be in school, but their parents who are actually paying the ridiculous amounts of money for their, for their child to be in school in some cases. So it's being reinforced and pushed upon by all these stakeholders. And I feel like the, the, the challenge that, that we came across was the responsibility of institutions. You know, at some point, at, well, I should say at what point, uh, do, uh, do institutions of, of higher education and even primary education, at what point do they have to take a stand around the, the, um, the uh, sort of an ethical position around the, the use of, of, of technologies to develop skills while also developing the kind of critical understanding that is required uh, and, and, uh, and important for young people to, um, uh, to, uh, to operate in the world today? Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts on, on this train of... Yeah, sure. So um, at, the, at, uh, at, the, at Project Zero, uh, we conducted uh, surveys and interviews with uh, 40 uh, young people who are civically and digitally active um, between the ages of 15 and 25, and um, men, men, uh, all of them living in the U.S. actually, so our sample was U.S.-based. Um, and we for this study, we specifically focused on 15 uh, young people who really use social media heavily to engage in civic dialogue, um, like I said before. And um, sort of the issues they were engaging uh, sort of range from uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict, racism, LGBTQ issues, uh, environmental issues, so a wide range of issues. And what we, uh, what we found in our study was that when it came to civic dialogue, young people were able to sort of um, employ a wide range of different strategies to advance their causes and um, push their agenda. 
But when it came to meaningfully engaging with different um, and especially conflicting points of view, uh, young people tended to uh, withdraw or, or, or very, at the very least struggle a lot. So um, part of the question was where are young people getting supports to engage in these online dialogue about civic issues? And what we sort of found was that there were a lot of, um, there are some gaps. So basically, a lot of school-based civic learning experiences were uh, fairly infrequent, so especially those uh, providing support around online civic expression. And um, the, the story was where uh, we had was, you know, a lot of, this is a space where self-directed learning dominates when it comes to uh, civic dialogue. So while a handful of young people spoke about receiving direct support either online or offline for their online activities. Moose learning um, sort of took place um, through observational learning or by directly engaging through experience. So, um, so sort of the big picture we had was that um, even in cases where there was media uh, literacy curricula available, um, it tended to be outdated and not really addressing um, current civic or political media context. So um, there were some uh, gaps in educational uh, support structures that um, education, education, uh, education um, structures could uh, potentially uh, provide. So that was one big finding of our study. So for, for the, our book, From By Any Media Necessary, we really were looking mostly at groups that operated outside of the formal educational structures. And what we found there, I think, was that these organizations did, this youth who were aligned with organizations, movements, and networks had more scaffolding in their ability to articulate their civic goals, more support, and identifying the right people to direct their energies toward, more visibility within those communities, better models for how to articulate their causes. Uh, a number of ways they got support that wasn't there for these kids who were left totally on their own with neither the support of school nor the support of organizations or after-school programs. So, you know, and lots of young people are finding their way into those spaces where they are doing a, you know, signing a petition, creating a meme, sending things through Facebook or Twitter or making YouTube videos or whatnot, but if they don't have a community of support around them, they're less likely to be able to sustain that activity. And we, you know, in our work, we talk about nerd fighters, we talk about Harry Potter Alliance, we talk about dreamers and American Muslim youth and invisible children and young libertarians, all case studies of very different political groups, but all supporting that. The second part of it is, that there really was a divide we were seeing between those groups that knew going in that they were facing opposition. Let's say the Dreamers or American Muslim youth who did training internally about how to face contentious politics, how to rebut charges directed against them, how to argue on behalf of their own case, and some groups that are more consensus-driven uh, who really assumed the world would share their point of view and were ill-prepared for the pushback that came. And the, in the book, The Invisible Children example around CUNY 2012 was a spectacular example of a group that had really empowered voice 
but didn't necessarily think about how to prepare those young people for the challenges or critiques that might be lobbied against their position. And that's where I think we see the school-based stuff maybe having a little more emphasis on traditional notions of rhetoric or argumentation, having offering something to young people involved in political speech that some of the after-school groups haven't necessarily provided their members. Yeah, that's um, something that the the HPA has been working on recently, um, kind of speaking to that point of this lack of experience or ability to um, deal with those contentious conversations and situations. Um, I think everyone's probably heard or seen tales of, you know, the internet discourse getting, you know, nasty quickly because there's kind of a lack of skills on how to have those conversations um, in a positive way. And so HPA has been specifically working on developing community guidelines and promoting these discussions about what does it mean to have those conversations and how do you be a citizen of an internet community and how does that actually work because um, that was such a gap in our members that we've been kind of trying to fill that gap ourselves with our messaging. I think Erica wants to say something or is that what I'm seeing? I can I can hold off though. No, go for it. Okay. <laughs> well, I just wanted to say because uh, I think a couple people have brought this up and I know this touches on, Janae, what you're talking about, what Henry mentioned, and I know this is connected to Ashley and her group study, um, but it, it was really interesting to sort of see how in a school context the, the teachers that I worked closely with were able to really create opportunities for young people to be part of an online community that was really focused on dialogue and civic expression because we do often see this more out of school, but I think um, with the study that I focused on, there were teachers using this platform called Youth Voices, which was actually started by National Writing Project teachers um, in an effort to bring their students together with other classrooms, so sort of going beyond the classroom walls in the school um, that you know educators are connecting from New York to California to Utah and very different communities and different populations of students and so we've seen some really interesting connections between students in really being part of an online community in a much more um, scaffolded context and there's a lot more support from teachers while at the same time young people have their own account they're able to go on and, and really um, express their viewpoints but I think it's really interesting to sort of you know, look at what about this works and also um, how do we understand quality around these sort of opportunities to scaffold for young people in and out of school to be part of sort of civic participation in online settings um, and connecting not only contentious conversations but also um, how do we help young people use those conversations to then start to move towards influence and so I know that's something that's really the focus of the issue as well as the book, but you know, how do we create these opportunities for expression and then how does that help young people think about how to use their tools and strategies that they're learning towards action or towards influence or towards pushing within institutional or non-institutional settings. Any other thoughts on this particular strand? Wave your arm or some nod or lean forward. Oh yeah, go Paul. Yeah, I, I, I'd love to chime in. I think it's, um, <clears throat> I see this, I, I agree on the K-12 level. 
sometimes I see uh, when I'm in the secondary schools or, or talking to educators, there is um, it's uh, that idea from voice to influence is, is is almost one that's very risky. I think at least in the public school spaces, there's a lot of external influences on teachers. While they can, Youth Voice is a great example of teaching them. Uh, possibly about engaging across schools and around different issues, but taking that to, to a sense of kind of participation or advocacy or activism, um, I think it gets quite muddled and a lot of teachers worried about, you know, parent feedback and worried about um, um, the diverse backgrounds of students and, and having to navigate that. So it almost seems to me, at least in that space, that it's a bit, there, there are some more structural constraints that keep it at maybe that, that that voice space, which is not necessarily a bad thing. And, in, and I'll just say quickly on the higher education level where we looked at, um, <clears throat> where there's no real, there's no, there's no um, at least not yet, there's no real constraint or barrier to uh, having the learning uh, and the engagement be situated in a form of kind of active community-based work that is uh, helping speak to power and teaching about well beyond the notion of voice, uh, but I think that um, it, it works in, in, in specific places, but that overall what we were arguing is that a majority, not a majority, but <clears throat> from what, what we've seen, a number of students are really just interested in that whole notion of learning the skills they need to know to go advance their work, and, and you do get great activists I'm making generalizations now, but uh, I, I think the default seems to be that the university at least is serving that function far more than it is um, about uh, about prioritizing the notion that media is about um, speaking back to power, overtaking power, disrupting dominant systems. Sasha, go ahead. Yeah, this is, this is such a great thread. And I'd just like to jump in um, on some of what Paul is just saying with, like, um, I totally agree that there are so many structural constraints, especially in the high schools. Um, you know, sort of blocking teachers from supporting young people to be involved in social movements and to use media in that context. But there are a couple counterexamples that came from the work we were doing that I think is really, really um, kind of interesting and valuable to add to the conversation. Um, specifically, a lot of people talked about the importance of intergenerational uh, relationships and in, in the movement work that they were doing, and that includes in education. And so what's interesting is that some of those same forces that are being imposed on high school teachers from outside the system, right? So the neoliberalization of education, teach to test, defunding of public schools, those are things that affect teachers and they also affect the young people in the public school system. But there are a few interesting cases where um, young people are making media in the context of student-led movements to support teachers in their struggles against some of those processes. And specifically, I'm thinking of what's been happening in Philadelphia with the Philly Students Union, a movement supporting Philly teachers around fighting defunding of the schools there. Um, something similar has happened in Detroit, um, where uh, you know the the crazy uh, system that they had there, where they had a an elected state level takeover uh, of public services, and that included a process of choosing to shut down a whole a, a number of the Detroit schools. That was being fought by community members, by young people, and also by teachers. Uh, and also in Boston, just recently, this last uh, this last spring, um, there was a series of student walkouts, which were um, partly around defunding, uh, you know, public education. So there are contexts where uh, I think teachers and young people, at least at the high school level, um, can be in common cause in, in social movements against um, the neoliberalization and defunding of the public education system. 
And there you see some really interesting media production activities happening, often led by the young people, and not necessarily explicitly, but at least tacitly sort of supported um, by, by the teachers who are also involved in those movements. Um, so we've identified issues, bottlenecks, opportunities, instances where things work, places, you know, does voice work better inside classrooms, influence outside of classrooms, like that we've talked about those. But in the last, let's say, 15 minutes that remain, I would like us to pivot towards thinking about what our recommendations would be. Because many of you really spent time, and we've already been dropping some, you've been dropping, you've been using examples and sharing examples of things that have worked, but if we could maybe really focus in on what our recommendations would be, should we be, if like in a context where we might be able to pass these on to somebody and say, please do this, um, for finding ways to bring civic learning into classrooms in new ways. Yeah, perhaps I can, I can just follow up that uh, with, um, I mean, actually connecting with what Sasha was saying about the context. And uh, I think this is what perhaps teachers and everybody working with youth has to be like very uh, like in tune or in, and on the radar or keep, keeping on the radar. What are those contexts that will spark the civic engagement right away, right? Like these specific situations. Uh, that will allow them to go beyond the so how somehow the neoliberalization of the education and the use of technologies just with this kind of work readiness productivity and have something that goes that put, puts them on a place of uh, opposition and questioning power right like how how would be like young people in a position they are really, they are using their voices already so how how do you bring them to those contexts and those conversations right away? It's, it's something that needs to be very fast. It's, you cannot wait, right? It's just like Saturday happened this thing in Orlando, just be ready to, to have a conversation around those issues and what it means or things like that. Teachers need to be tuned to the, what is going on now in social media and civic media because those are the contexts where students can actually um, experience the flow and the, the liveness of, this, of, the, of the technology. Anybody want to follow up with other thoughts about recommendations? Um, I can just add that, you know, something I discussed in what I wrote was just something I see a lot and have experienced in other nonprofits that I've worked with and they come, how do you engage the youth? And the question it seems like they're actually asking is how do we get youth to participate in the systems and the structures that we've already set up? and not how do we make things that meet youth where they are and actually engage with the youth. They want youth to engage with them, not the other way around. Um, and I think that's a really important distinction and something that requires a little bit of risk, a little bit of potentially some more playful thinking of, you know, maybe spending some time on Tumblr or whatever and figuring out, you know, what they care about and the language that they're using and being able to speak to them in that language instead of, trying to kind of force feed or force youth to engage in a system that wasn't built for them. Um, so I think that's kind of my number one takeaway for people of something that I think could really improve systems. Other thoughts, burning thoughts? Otherwise, I'm just going to briefly introduce Kylie. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> you know, I guess never la better late than never. Um, so maybe if you could just take yourself off mute, Kylie, and just give a really brief introduction. I know you're coming at, at this from, like, you don't know what's been going on. Her internet was down. But just maybe give a brief intro of who you are, what your article was that you contributed. Yeah, absolutely. Forgive my tardiness. I, I'm so sorry, and I apologize. I am Kylie Larson, and I'm a research scientist at New York University. Uh, for the last five-ish years, we've been doing work in all of the MacArthur-funded uh, digital media and learning sites. And so our piece really focused on how one school in Chicago was able to try to engage young people in a way that connected them both to something they were interested in, but also in a way that connected to an issue that they saw in their own community. So it tried to create space for them to do some interest-driven learning in a way that also felt relevant and civically minded and engaged. So actually, kind of, it's a perfect segue because you're in some ways making the bridge in your case study in between what we were just talking about, meeting youth where they're at. Um, what were some of the pieces of that? Because I remember um, it was in a way a brave educator that was doing that, right? I think that's why we had the brave educator question. So maybe can you speak a little bit more to the specifics of what happened? Sure. So in this context, um, they're an interesting they're in an interesting position because they were actually part of what's called a Hive Learning Network, which is a network of other learning institutions, both formal and informal, throughout the city of Chicago. And so they were really well positioned to be able to tap into some of these existing resources. And so this educator was partnered with a local organization that was trying really hard to give people in the community, people in the city, space to voice community issues that they saw and to elevate them to the attention of their local aldermen. Um, not a lot of youth for using it, and so they saw this as an opportunity to really say, hey, look, if you've got an issue, let's partner with a classroom, let's get your issue up on here, and let's figure out a way that we can connect you to people who can actually help you make this change and make this difference. So teens would say things like, all right, so there's this abandoned building on the corner, and there's a lot of people who hang out there, and it, it really makes me nervous to walk by. I feel uncomfortable. What could we do about that? And so this teacher would spend a lot of time helping them like, look up housing codes and building ordinances to figure out what practically could be done. Um, I think for me what was the most powerful piece was not just the online piece because they did all get on and they all shared their projects and they did get support of their community members on this particular website. You could jump on and get likes so they would share out in their own social media groups and they had their friends jump on and liked and random people would come on and like their projects. But they also had an in-person portion where they invited local politicians, aldermen, um, someone from the mayor's office came and they were able to present their projects in person and to actually get real-time feedback on ways they could make what they saw as real community needs actionable. And that kind of translation work was really powerful for them because they could see that their voice did matter and they could see a pathway forward to how they could actually affect some kind of change. And the teacher worked very hard to make sure that they kept their projects manageable so that they could actually do these things mo moving forward if they wanted to. Do you want to add anything? Or? No, we'll see, if, see if people have <laughs> yeah, more. Yeah, more comments, thoughts. Please share more about your case studies because it's really rich and interesting and um, creates great sound bites <laughs> that we can also use. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, I just wanted to add to Kylie's point. Um, it's interest, really interesting program that uh, she's describing with the heavy uh, practice components. So uh, one of the really interesting findings in our study was that 
um, young people when um, they were engaging in contentious uh, civic dialogue, they actually had pretty good conceptions of what good civic dialogue and conversations should look like. So they should be well-informed, respectful, and engage diverse perspective. But um, as I mentioned before, um, the extent to which uh, these youth were actually able to realize um, these features in real conversations, um, in their own online conversations, was quite another matter. So um, especially uh, disagreements around contentious topics, they struggled a lot and tended to withdraw. So, um, so even when they can identify people who are uh, good models for responding to conflicts online, for example, this happens. So I, um, I think that you know one of the um, important thing that needs to happen in education is the idea of connecting theory and uh, reflection with actual um, immersive practice. So um, you know maybe one way to do this is by designing civic learning experiences that encourage young people to reflect on powerful examples of participatory politics, but also practice the key skills. So especially um, uh, providing them opportunities to engage with the peers, with their peers, and taking different sides on important public issues in um, safe scaffolded settings. So um, you know, like um, community of practice um, uh, approach might be um, one good way, um, like Kylie was suggesting. So. So I, it's very clear that we're going to have a no end of teachable moments in the election cycle that's running through the fall in terms of what good and bad digital citizenship looks like. Uh, so how can we help teachers think about seizing these moments? Uh, some of the Twitter exchanges between the candidates, some of the other things that are cropping up on almost an hourly basis right now. How do we you're, you're talking about role models, and that's an important part of it. We've also got a lot of highly visible negative role models. So what, what, what do we do as educators to think, uh, think differently as we move into the fall? Well, I can say a little bit about that. I, I think the, the first thing that's important is, to, uh, is for teachers to engage uh, just at all. And I think that you know, one, of the, one of the challenges is that you know, it's like if you don't know a language that well um, and you're afraid to speak uh, to, to native speakers uh, and you don't speak at all, you're never going to learn, you're never going to learn that language. And I, and I feel like with teachers, it's the same thing. It's, it's, it's um, not feeling comfortable in a digital environment and, and not wanting to sort of take the risk and take the plunge of engaging students where they are. And I think there is so much damage to be done. Um, by by saying, well, that's where the that's where the kids are, and and uh, and and we're just we're just not going to engage. That's not something that happens in the classroom. Um, and so I think that for for teachers, like the, the the most practical advice that can be given is simply to engage, um, simply to to uh, to pay attention uh, to what's going on and to incorporate it even into dialogue. I mean, uh, the 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 into into social studies or to open circle or whatever whatever context exists within the classroom. Uh, to bring to sort of bridge that gap between uh, between online life and, and offline life in the classroom in a reasonable way where 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 kids understand that that adults are not simply um, bystanders uh, but they actually can be active participants in in this world that they're living in. 
I have um, also one thing to add to that, which is, and, and I think this came out of um, the study that I did, but it also comes out of the work that we've done over the last um, four or five years with teachers um, in Oakland, but also thinking with other teachers across the U.S. that I think that really connecting educators to each other is also really key. I think it is critical for um, teachers, and I would say this in and out of school, but I think particularly for teachers, you often find yourself in a classroom, and I'm thinking of, you know, what Kylie shared about this really brave, innovative educator, you know, how powerful it is to connect educators like that with other teachers, to really, I think that often because of the constraints and because of the pressures, especially in K-12, you can feel really alone. <laughs> and I think, you know, I think it's really important for educators to connect with each other and to find networks like, you know, Educator Innovator, to find networks like the Letters to the Next President. And I think in particular in thinking about the fall, you know, connecting not only students but connecting teachers. And I think in the study that, um, that I did with teachers who were connecting through Youth Voices, not only were they bringing their students um, together online through this platform, they themselves were doing, and this is through Teachers Teaching Teachers, it's a, a weekly um, online conversation where teachers come together and talk about how do we do this work and what are you doing in your classroom and I think that that can happen in online spaces in new and different ways than you know often happens in brick and mortar schools so I would give the you know advice to you know teachers have a lot of expertise so how do we build off of that and bring them together um, and really build those professional experiences for them with one another and with their colleagues. I can add to that if, um, yeah, if there's time to add to it. Um, so I think, uh, thanks for the thumbs up. Um, <clears throat> I think it's also, I, I love the idea of modeling, um, not like, not too top-down prescriptive, this is how you can engage actively, but showing peer teachers, like peer modeling for youth is important, I think peer modeling for educators is important. And I think this, um, I know the title of the journal is From Voice to Influence, and I think that's really important as we think of an arc of learning and engagement. But I do think, you know, what Ashley said, I've found in past research as well about uh, once, the, once the youth dialogue goes into open public spaces, we found a lot that a, a lot of the negotiations that happen at young informative ages with youth reinvent themselves. They get nervous about their own knowledge about this or about, about spouting off their own opinions. And I think one thing um, classrooms can do, and I've seen this most recently, you know, around the current political situation in middle schools here on the North Shore of Massachusetts, a lot of students are, um, uh, I was, when I was in them for another reason, I ended up talking about how uh, they're, they're shy to, to express their political views in class because they're unsure of what other students are saying and they're fearing the risk of how that transcends into the social space of the classroom. That's a pretty uh, large problem, and I think, you know, much like Sasha said, it, there's good examples for how we can model and facilitate this, and I don't think we should forget about teaching that fundamental space of voice as the first kind of layer towards agency at a, at a formal stage, and then building on top of that. What does voice look like here in a physical space? What does it look like online? Um, and then, you know, there's some great, just very traditional media literacy work um, I always say critical engagement with media never equals critical engagement in the community or with society. But in terms of Henry's initial question around 
what's happening now and what we see out in the in the sphere, there's there's some really elaborative um, uh, opportunities to to talk about civility and to talk about the use of digital technologies to advocate meaningful conversation, opinion, and advocate beliefs versus um, you know hate speech and and bigotry and and, and inappropriate comments, and I think we have to engage them because you have this endless pool of contents. It's it's not easy in the formal space of the classroom, um, and and like and like Erica just said, that's especially difficult because teachers oftentimes might feel alone. But so anyway, those are some of the some of the things I would I, I think about. Yeah, go for it, Sasha. Yeah, I mean, I think this conversation has been so great, and everybody's you know suggestions are so powerful. I just have very briefly, we'll add a couple small things. Um, one is that I think that for educators who are interested in sort of education as the practice of freedom, as Bellhook puts it, and teaching to transgress, uh, I do think it's really important that there are spaces for other people who are involved in critical pedagogy to meet and talk about how they've been doing that. One of them is the Free Minds, Free People Conference, which I think a lot of people have talked about as being a really powerful space for meeting other educators who do that type of work. And another would be the Allied Media Conference, which is actually coming up next weekend in Detroit, um, which is an intergenerational space where people, um, including educators and some kid, there's a kid's track at the Allied Media Conference where people are learning how to use media um, as a critical consciousness expanding tool, um, as well as spaces where people talk about uh, higher education and whatnot. So yeah, finding those spaces where people um, are having those conversations is a, is a key thing to do. Final burning thoughts. I'm looking at the text I have to rattle off as we get all, go off air, but I don't want to cut anybody off. If you have a burning thing you need to say, okay. All right, I have one minute to do this. So we're almost out of time, <laughs> um, and I want to thank everybody for being here. This was a really great discussion, and I really hope that you who've been watching and everybody will check out the special issue when it comes out on June 27th. Um, at jodml, I believe, org is the URL for that. Uh, if you'd like to keep up, uh, keep up to date on future opportunities, sign up for the monthly newsletter at the educatorinnovator.org website. And you can follow Educator Innovator on Twitter at, at innovates underscore ed. Also, please don't forget that there's another way to keep up with the um, elections, and that is the next prez hashtag. Um, that uh, the National Writing Project has and the project associated with it. And the you can see their Twitter account for more information on the le Letters to the Next President 2.0. So thank you, everybody, again. Um, it's been a great discussion. I'm glad we had this opportunity to hang out and to actually have people meet each other. So looking forward to the next time.